So some things burn out much more quickly than you expect. If you saw, or if you know the original movie I planned to do, this Sunday it was called Goya's Ghost. It's a movie, as I understand it, not seen it obviously, about the Spanish Inquisition. I thought I could do a great little sort of historical sermon, maybe a little Unitarian Universalist history, an opportunity to teach us something about the grand and wonderful past of religious tolerance and religious freedom that grew up in spite of things like the Spanish Inquisition. Although at first I have to say what attracted me to the film was not its story. It starred, what's her name, Natalie Portman. And I thought Natalie Portman. For a lot of guys my age, in their 20s and 30s, she's our Audrey Hepburn. And my wife teases me about how often I mention her name in our house. And I thought, okay, I can preach on the Natalie Portman film. The problem was it came out about three weeks ago and has completely disappeared from theaters. Last I checked, it's made about $400,000 nationally. I don't think it's supposed to be very good. It's even directed by the guy who did One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Milos Forman, who at one point was one of our best directors. But this one really sort of fell down dead right at the box office. And so this past week when I was on my vacation and recognizing, hey, I need to see the movie for this Sunday, I checked it out around here in Philadelphia. I checked it out in upstate New York where I was traveling. I checked it out in Boston. 0 for 3. No Goya's ghosts. Bye, Natalie. What am I going to do? So I thought... Let's do a little sunshine. Let's do a little sci-fi this week. It's a movie that also, have any of you seen? Well, see it on DVD. It's pretty good. And it's better than Goya's Ghost, at least from what I've been able to estimate. It is one of those sci-fi movies about the potential end of the world. In it, the sun is dying. It's unlike the global warming situation we find ourselves in right now. The earth has grown cold because the sun is literally going extinct. Kind of like Goya's ghost. It's going out. And so this movie is about an eight-person crew mission that heads off, and again, the scientists here can tell me this is absolutely wrong. It sounds completely implausible. What they're going to do is they're going to drop a nuclear payload as big as the island of Manhattan into the sun to magically restart it with a new big bang. Science fiction. Science fiction. And the name of that crew, the name of its ship, and you get a sense of where it's headed if you know the Greek myths, it's called the Icarus II. <laughs> this is not going to be a comedy. Not everything's going to end well. You know the story, many of you do, of Icarus flying too close to the sun on wings that he constructed and getting closer and closer to the sun as he does. The sunlight and the sun melts the wings and he falls back down to earth. And also what we know, it's the Icarus II. There was an Icarus I at one point, and that has failed. So we're setting ourselves up in this movie for not everything to end completely happily. I do have to say, though, that it is one of the most stunning, stunning-looking movies I have ever seen. Unbelievably gorgeous. 
There's this one scene that has, it's the most amazing paradox, the infinity of space, and it's one of those space movies in which, of course, they have to do the dreaded spacewalk to try and save the ship from its mission because something is broken on the outside. And that scene is the greatest juxtaposition between the claustrophobia of being stuck in this suit and the grandeur of space. I was sweating. I was pouring sweat. It was so dramatic. And there's one singular effect on the mind in this movie in space. It's staring at the sun. Staring at the sun is what the people on the mission have to remind themselves to do not all the time. Some of them get so overwhelmed by this sense of heading towards this bright, bright, big gob of fire, which is still burning. And still, as they get closer and closer and closer, still can only be seen at 3% of its total. It's just not doing its job for Earth any longer. But there's another reason. There's another reason that they stare at the sun. This is science fiction again. And this is where the movie heads into some sort of mystical territory. Those who stare at the sun have this feeling, this understanding that they are just absorbed. Absorbed as pure light, pure radiance into what makes our lives possible. The sense of being fused, the sense of finding union. But at the same time, it also can do great damage. And so, because this is a science fiction set in outer space, there's a series of unfortunate events. Eventually, the crew comes to know that their trip is a one-way trip, that their mission, like an arrow shot from a bow, will not be returning them back home. And so there is the war between those people who want to save their own lives and those people who want to complete their mission. And there's one other thing that happens. Mysteriously, they run into Icarus the first, Icarus one, that has been feared for the past seven years to be lost. And this is where we really go off the deep end in the movie. Because it turns out, for the last seven years, that the Icarus One has been floating off somewhere near the planet Mercury. It has been sabotaged. All its crew killed, but for its captain, who now, in a completely disfigured state, existing only in his relationship to the sun, stares at it day and night. Well, actually, it's outer space, so it's not day and night. 24 hours a day, if you would. Captain Pinbacker. He has become, if I see the flies are back this week, Captain Pinbacker. He has become so fused in his love for the sun, his adoration, that he does not want anything to change. He says mystical, cryptic things like at the end of time, there will be one man spent only in eternity adoring the sun with God. Make sense of that if you can. But it gets a little bit more nefarious, a little bit more evil. Because the one thing he does not want to do is to try and jumpstart this sun. He says it's all in God's hands. And so he makes his way to the Icarus II and tries to stop them. This is where the dramatic part of the movie comes about. He tries to stop them from unleashing their nuclear payload into the sun so that Earth, Earth is able to exist. That's the battle of the movie. Will the payload be delivered or not? And it is very much a science fiction with a spiritual, mystical element. And really the greatest spiritual theme for us to understand in the movie is all about adoration, all about adoring something, and all about the uses of ecstasy. I'm not talking about the drug, but that's why the drug is popular amongst some people, because it gives that feeling of absolute ecstasy for a moment, and with a cost, with a great cost. A feeling of ecstasy, 
of transcending reason, of transcending ourselves, of being absolutely fused with the object of what we love. And this is where Danny Boyle, who's the director, returns to some very familiar terrain, even if it's off the earth. This seems to be a theme in many of his movies. If you've seen Train Spotting, if you've seen The Beach, if you've seen 28 Days Later, it's all about the uses and abuses of pleasure. In all those movies and in this one, what starts out as pleasurable, whether it's a drug, whether it's another person, whether it is scientific experimentation, whether it is a search for a beautiful, pristine beach far off in the South Pacific, that turns in on itself. And what happens is that adoration and ecstasy start to become awful things. This is very much what sunshine is about. It really tests and wants to ask the questions, what are the ethical limits and the ultimate idolatry of being so in love with something that you cannot have any responsibility to anything other than it? Now, what am I talking about with this? I think what I'm talking about is something that David Bowie said many years ago. And it is at first, and when you're going to hear it, you're going to go, ooh, that's awful. It is a grossly insensitive statement. And I don't think he was praising him, although it was still a really stupid thing to say. David Bowie said that Adolf Hitler was the first real genuine rock and roll star. It's an offensive thing to say. What he was talking about in his young and stupid words, where, well, if you weren't Jewish... <laughs> If you weren't gypsy, if you weren't gay, if you were just some average German in the 1930s, have you ever seen those tapes, those historical records of what the crowds looked like at those big Hitler masses? It's horrifying. It also could be properly defined as a form of ecstasy, as a form of complete union with the leader, with his will. That's why it's so horrifying, because people were in this state of absolute thrall. That's why they were willing to do such horrible things and not pay attention to the things they did not want to know about. Paul Tillich, who's one of my favorite theologians and escaped Germany after the 1930s, talked about this kind of faith. He called it very strongly, and he chose his words intentionally, demonic faith. Now, he didn't believe in demons. He didn't believe in Satan as a figure down there somewhere. But he talked about when faith and religion lose its ethical structure. When we lose our ability of focusing on, regardless of what we might think or might not think about God, when we lose the opportunity and the ability to reason out how we apply what we believe to other people. The scripture says, I think it's in the second letter, second epistle of John, talks about if you have love for God, but you do not practice love for your fellow person, then you do not love God. If you do not love each other, because love is a gift from God, then you cannot love God. This is what Tillich was talking about with his idolatrous faith, his demonic faith, and he saw how truly evil it was with these mass rallies in Germany, and he saw what happened when ecstasy became an end to itself because people wanted to feel good about themselves. Now, probably the closest I've gotten to this feeling of ecstasy, and I would say it's morally neutral. It's obviously nothing at all like being at a Hitler rally, and it's certainly nothing at all like, I would say, even being in spiritual community, but it comes a little close to the latter, is being at a Bruce Springsteen concert. If you've ever been there, and it's a certain part of the concert when, especially if I'm talking with the E Street Band right now, when they're all together, when the guys have been all together for these 30, actually more than 30 years at this point, 
and it's when they're doing Badlands, and I won't try to sing it, but all the lights come up, and it's the whoa, 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 whoa part, and again, I'm not going to try and sing it. It is amazing. 20,000 people all in concert. It is a high. It is unbelievable feeling. Now, I also can't say it makes me at all a better person. <laughs> it doesn't make me a worse person. I'd like to believe it makes me more sensitive to the struggles of everyday people and all those great things that Bruce Springsteen sings about. But probably just in and of itself, it is that feeling of great ecstasy. It is that feeling of transcending who I am and what I am for a moment and being fused up into something which is so much greater than me. It's an experience of the holy. It's an experience of the sacred. Again, I think it's morally neutral. One of the things that Paul Tillich talked about is one of the reasons why ecstatic states are so galvanizing, so beautiful for us, is because, because we seek to get beyond ourselves at life, during life. We seek to move beyond just our limitations and to experience that deep sense of community. But he also said, beware. Beware because within that, it can lead you to great goodness. It can also lead you to great peril. I really like the way the Hindus talk about their understanding of the pantheon of the divine because they have a God of destruction. Too often in the West we talk about God as pure sweetness, pure light, pure love, and then we sort of elevate Satan up to pure evil. Certainly not as Unitarian Universalist, but that's too often the way we talk about it, especially emerging from a Christian tradition. But the Hindu tradition, they talk about the Lord God Shiva, who is a God of destruction. And that's not a bad thing, it's not a good thing. Destruction is the thing that makes the way for change. But destruction in and of itself, in and of itself, if it's sought only, leads us to not practice love, not practice blessing with each other. But I think it is an understanding that if any of you have ever experienced an ecstatic state, that sense of union, whether it's in meditation, whether it's in, I don't know if any of you have ever done Sufi dancing, you know, the whirling dervishes they call them, that's a form of movement that leads many people for centuries into an ecstatic state of moving beyond who they are. I had an experience of this, particularly in its destructive form, a few years back. Many of you know I'm a runner, and not a very good one, and I was running my second half marathon. And the first half of it, I was running the best race of my life. I mean, like sub nine-minute miles, which for me was incredible. And about six and a half miles, literally almost just about to the half point, started to recognize this pain right in my shin here. said, okay, got to slow it down a little bit. Got to slow it down, got to try and keep the pace up where I can finish at least at a good time. And that pain got worse. And that pain got worse. And about mile nine or ten, it started to burn and throb and ache. And I could tell, you know, there's a difference between pain and injury. I could tell there was an injury going on here. Mile 9, mile 10, do I keep going? Yes. I keep going. I'm going to gut it out. Mile 11, mile 12, I'm like, you know, almost dragging it along back of me. And the thing was, even in the midst of all that pain, I felt a form of ecstasy. I mean, the endorphins were going off in my brain like bottle rockets, like fireworks. And I had this sense, and I think this is true of a lot of young guys I've known, and certainly true of me. I am going to transcend my pain. That will to power. Now, I got to the end of the race, and the endorphin levels went back down, and I couldn't walk. <laughs> it turns out, as I found out when I went to the doctor, my, red, my lower shin got all red and inflamed. 
I'd given myself a stress fracture. A little jarrow, nagged, a little jagged line right down the front of my tibia. I couldn't run for about eight months after that. I had to give it up. That was a stupid thing. But in the midst of that crawl, I was in love with that sense of ecstasy, that sense of transcending who I was. It's almost sort of like that vision of Narcissus staring at his own shadow, in love with himself. Greek myths are so much, so often about this. And this is what happens to the crew during sunshine. Some of the crew, they stare at the sun so wonderfully wrapped by what brings them life. But they lose all perspective. Literally, those who stare at it too long go blind. Not just blind in sight, but blind in heart and blind morally. This is what animates all true religion. It's what Daniel Berrigan, the great prophetic Catholic priest, called the ability to be mystics with hands. He said all of us are called to true religious experience. All of us are called to that sense of union and ecstasy, reaching those states as people can on their meditation couch or kneeling in prayer or whirling as a dervish. Yes, those are baked into who we are, but with hands, he said. Because the point is that without the grounding, without the gravity of practicing love and kindness toward each other, we would fly away, leave orbit, kind of like the people on the starship and sunshine do. Because without the call to each other, without the mystical and the ethical reaching each other, it is incomplete spirituality. It's like one of my favorite pieces in scripture. Some of you might know it. Moses is approaching the burning bush for the first time. And God says something really, really curious, if you know the story. Approach, you're about to see God, etc., etc. Now take off your shoes. Sounds like a very strange commandment. You're approaching, now take off your shoes. We talking sacred sandals here? We talking liturgically correct footwear? No. I think the reason for the commandment is this. That God wants Moses to stay grounded. He's about to see something unbelievable. He's about to have a vision. He's about to experience the full manifestation of the divine. But he's saying, stay on the earth. You're about to experience something truly amazing, but stay here. Stay grounded. Take your shoes off, because when your shoes are off, you got the sand in your toes. And when the sand's in your toes, you know, you know that still you walk upon the earth. And the reason I'm calling you, this is my interpolation of it, my interpretation, the reason I'm calling you a prophet is to do good on this earth in the first place. The vision, the ecstasy, well, that was just to get your attention and to prove that something real is going on here. The pull of the holy, and maybe you felt it at times. I know the few times, deepest in meditation, I have felt, oh, why can't life be all like this? The sense of pure love, pure joy, pure peace. There's always been reasons that we're called back into life. Some of you know the term Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Chances are you might know about the Madonna Hollywood form of it. But for generations, when it was practiced in Judaism, the best students were taught Kabbalah last. 
they were taught the mystical element last because they were afraid for the students that if they didn't have a solid ethical grounding, they would take that sense of liberty and freedom and just run with it. Mystics with hands. Hearts that are wide and also hearts that open up towards each other. That's what evening comes down to. Is it the mission to adore or is it the mission to save that counts most in our lives, in our spiritual lives? I would finally say it's both. But there's always that risk. Martin Buber is one of my favorite theologians. Talks about he's we've talked about him before. He talked about the I thou. He talks about so much of our modern lives are living I it that you are a means to an end for me. That I use you maybe not cruelly, but I will use you in the same way that maybe I will mindlessly have the person at Wawa cash me out without recognizing their humanity. You know, we don't even recognize that maybe they have a name tag. We don't recognize who they are. He said that's the I-it kind of way of being in the world. And he said there's a deeper way. It's I-thou. And what he was trying to do is fuse mysticism with being an ethical person. And he knew this because of a great guilt that he carried with him throughout his entire life. You see, Buber was a student and a scholar, and then finally a professor at a university in Germany before the First World War. And there was a student who came to him one day, and the student was really, really struggling. Do I go and fight for the Kaiser? Do I go to war? Should I sign up? Is it my duty to my country? Is it my duty to my family? Is it my duty to Germany? The problem was, was that Buber was in one of his pure, meditative, prayerful states when this student came into his office. And he was so enraptured with his prayer that he sort of blew the student off. He said, basically the equivalent, do what you like. Do whatever you want to. The student, not getting a great answer from somebody he had sought guidance from, went to war and was killed within two weeks. Word got back to Buber. And at that moment, his life changed. He said there has to be a way of drawing back together ecstasy and ethics. There has to be a way to experience the highs of this spiritual life while at the same time not forgetting all of us and each of us. And in that, he started to talk about the life of dialogue, the life with people. It's a parable of the mountain, an old one. There's a story of a group of seekers who go up a mountain, it is rumored, many thousands of miles away from where they live. And all of them, men and women and children, are seeking God because it said God exists on the top of that mountain where the air is pure, up there where things are clear, up there where things are beautiful. And they ascend after many weeks, many months of struggle, struggle getting up and up and up and up. And they get to the top of the mountain, the very apex, and it is gorgeous, and it is beautiful. And it is everything they thought. But for one thing, God is not there. The truth of the story is that while they were ascending up to the top, God was going down the other side, into the valley, into the village that sat at the bottom of the foot of that great mountain. The divine was going down to be by the sides of those people who were dying. The divine was going down to be with those people who were struggling. The great mystery was going to be a part of life that was coming to be. See, because finally it all comes down to earth. Good religion always comes back home. 
Good religion is always a matter of saying whatever we might believe, so much of it is speculative. What matters, the cash value of it, is how we treat one another. It does not matter how much we love God. If we cannot practice love for each other, then I think that love is without merit. If we cannot show it, if we cannot share it, then what good is it? And that's just where the movie returns us. That's just where sunshine ends. The crew has died, but the mission has been accomplished. And we see a sunshine, a sunrise coming up on the earth, an earth that is now covered in ice. And we see the cousins of the physicist on that journey. And he has sent in his last message back to them, you will know we were successful if you see a sunrise and a burst of light from our sun that you have not seen in a long time. His mission transcends his life, and his mission is fulfilled when the sun rises again and warms up our planet. At the end of this movie, I thought of our mission, to be a community charged full with the charge of the soul. I really thought of it this past week, thought of what we're doing here, what we're striving toward, what we're building and what we're sharing. And it really came home to me. It came home to me when I heard the words of a U.S. representative. Maybe some of you saw it this past week. His name is Bill Sally. He's from Idaho. And this is what he said. He said, we not only have a Hindu prayer being offered in the Senate, we have a Muslim member of the House of Representatives now. Those are changes, and they are not what was envisioned by the Founding Fathers. Not what was envisioned by the Founding Fathers. He said, Representative Sally, that the only way the United States has been allowed to exist in a world that is so hostile to Christianity, to Christian principles, is through the protective hand of God. You know the Lord can cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, said the representative. He states that when a Hindu prayer was offered, and when a Muslim serves an elective office, well, they're serving a different God, and that it creates problems. I love the way he phrased this. Not love it, but you get what he's getting at. It creates problems for the longevity of this country. That, my friends is an idolatrous faith. Dare we even say demonic? Not demonic in the sense of demons running around, but demonic because of what it aims to serve. Listen to what he's saying. It is an explicit threat against our country. Stray too far from the one true faith, and our protection will be lifted. It is nothing other than threatening violence against our country. It's like Jerry Falwell, hate to speak ill of the dead, but he said it, not me, claiming the September 11th attacks were because of the abortionists, the gays, the lesbians. Remember that nonsense he went on and on about? It's that threat of violence. That is a demonic faith. That is a faith that insists that the adoration of the scripture the ecstasy that scripture can provide to some people is more important and is more true than keeping each other safe or learning through our differences as to what we might hold in common as Americans. 
If you think what I say is too strong, there is that implicit threat of violence. And for those who decry religion, and many of them are making millions of dollars right now writing books, well, Representative Sally is just yet another idiot, charlatan, rube, person abusing religion. And you can put him into that category and say, well, it's indefensible. A few weeks ago, I told you about an argument, it's not quite an argument, a discussion, but it could have become an argument with someone who said, well, you'll realize the errors of your ways when the rapture comes. There's no way to win or lose that argument. The only thing I thought of after that I would have said different is, well, I'm a universalist, and I can't claim with any certainty what heaven is or is not for any of us. But in my belief, my speculative hope, do you realize that if you are right, you will win and I will lose? But in my deepest hope of my universalist heart, if I win, I win, and you win. I'd like to think we can imagine that. I'd like to think we can imagine that. It depends what we think the spiritual goal of life is. Is it really to win an argument, or it is to continue blessing the world, learning to cherish each other, learning to love each other, healing our lives, and enlarging, enlarging, enlarging quest that by definition is infinite, is eternal, is like staring out into space and saying, it is never finished, it is just here. There are some who believe that argument, that religion is an argument with an end point to be won. But we are called to a different path as Unitarian Universalists and as people who are part of Wellsprings. Because we believe that we can, each of us, be charged full with the charge of the soul. And that this charge can come through in so many different ways and in so many different words. And the way we show we have a charge is by showing we have a charge. It's not a theory. It's not a thought. It is kind of like the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Just before this service, as I really like to have happen, I had someone pray for me. Pray with me. I was sort of sick yesterday. Energy was flagging. We clasped hands, and I shut up. And I got to tell you, there was energy there. Because that charge is shared. Because that charge exists only to be shared. Love kept to itself has no meaning. Energy kept to itself has no meaning. Soul kept to itself has no meaning. Finally, I believe what that thing is, that God is, that soul is, that higher power is, that the spirit is, is mystical. Finally, I don't even think it has a name. But when we experience it in community when we experience it between us, when we share that charge, we are being responsible stewards of the truth that we know. And we are becoming the people that we want to be. As Gandhi said, the spiritual life is an experiment in truth. Experiments with truth. That's what our mission is about here. And yes, there are people, millions of them, like Representative Sali out there, and at times they should scare us. Because so much harm, and that's actually really what Goya's Ghost is going to be about, so I can bring that back in. So much harm has been done by that kind of idolatrous religion. I'll leave you with this question today. What is at stake for us here with our mission? To charge full with the charge of the soul. To be charged 
full, but also to charge outward with the charge of the soul. Do you believe that this can really transform our world? Do you believe that this is an experiment in truth and in wisdom so great and so grand that actually could heal lives and restore people who have lost hope and lost faith? Or who believe that there is only one way to be religious, there is only one way to have true spirituality, and all other people on bended knee must come to that way? Do you believe that to be charged full with the charge of the soul can change your life? That's the question. That's the question for all of us here. If we answer yes, if we answer yes with our minds, then we know what the response must be with our hands. To share the light. To spread the sunshine. To be, as Theodore Parker said, let ours be a religion which, like sunshine, goes everywhere. To be charged full is to share the best of who we are with each other, with our world, and with ourselves. Amen. May you live in blessing.